It was good to be on vacation for a couple weeks, but it's so good to be back and to be back in God's Word with you as we continue our study of 1 Thessalonians together, uh, starting in chapter uh, 3, verse 11 through 4.12. Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the Word of our God, is eternal and it abides forever and deserves our full attention. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness... Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that may, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. As the heavens, O oh God, are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours, and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. We're here because we want to know you. We want to know your truth, and we want to know your ways. Teach them to us, we ask. Guide us in them. Teach us to know all your truth, all your ways, and to seek after them with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our strength. Do this even now as we draw near to you. In your word we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. something that uh, every Christian deals with is the desire to know God's will. Young people face this when they're trying to decide uh, on what college to go to, what career to pursue, whom to marry. And as you get older, those questions start to become, what church do I go to? Which job should I take? How many children should I have? And eventually, harder questions start to present themselves. Questions about child raising. 
how to deal with conflict in marriage, countless other difficult questions. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with somebody and heard those words, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do here. That, that quest for direction and for certainty, it, it's common in the life of Christians. But we don't always get it. Sometimes the best we can do is look at the situation, pray about it, and exercise wisdom and make the best decision we can with no direct word from God on what to do. But it is ironic that there are many places where we have extremely clear instructions from the Lord on what His will is on a matter, and yet we ignore it. We, we long for clarity on some questions and run from clarity on other questions. And I'm talking about moral instruction. There are things that God tells us He wants for us always, 100% of the time, and yet we still act as if we don't know what His will is, or we directly contradict it. For example, God is abundantly, extremely, and utterly clear on the fact that Christians are only to marry Christians. But how often do you hear somebody say, Why would God have brought this person into my life if he didn't want me to marry him or her? God has made it clear that that a, a divorce is, is only allowed in cases of adultery or abandonment. And how often do you hear someone say, but I'm not happy and doesn't God want me to be happy? God's moral instructions, they're not recommendations. They're not occasionally true and they don't change. There are some things that God has not revealed to us about His will, but there are far more things that he has revealed. Look at verses 3 and 4 in our passage. This is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? Paul says, here it is. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's God's will right there for you. There it is. Your sanctification, holiness, obedience, self-control, sexual purity. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But there's a context. There there always is. Uh, 1 Thessalonians that we've been working our way through. And and I, I think we will be able to finish before I leave on sabbatical in a few weeks. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is about life following God in a fallen world. Uh, The Christians in Thessalonica, they were suffering for their faith. And Paul, who had led them to faith, has been gone for a while now, prevented from coming back, and they feel alone, and they feel discouraged, and they're hurting. And it's understandable, we get it. And so Paul is taking them back to the basics. He said in chapter, chapter 1, faith, hope, and love. These are the basics. This is what you need to focus on in your trials, in your affliction, in your suffering. And so he's going to deal with each of those. So chapters 2 and 3, they dealt with faith. 
Paul reminded them how they, how they first came to believe, not just what they believed, but the context in which they came to faith. He reminded them of, of how the cross of Christ had been manifested in Paul's life and ministry as he preached the gospel to them with great sacrifice and threats to his safety. And how they sacrificed so much in order to believe. And his point was that their conversions weren't easy. They counted the cost when they came to faith. And it's for that reason that Paul is confident that their faith is genuine. But he wasn't done. In chapter 3, he, he said that his inability to return to them reflected Jesus' own absence from the church. And so he did the best thing he could do. He sent Timothy to comfort them. And again, this is simply a reflection of Jesus sending his Holy Spirit to his people. And that, the sending of the Holy Spirit, is the real comfort that Christians have. That God, by his Spirit, dwells in each and every person who believes in Jesus Christ and surrenders to him. The Holy Spirit has made each of us his home. We have become the temple of the living God. That is our great comfort. And this is Paul's foundation as he turns from the issue of of what they believed and how they came to faith to how they are to live in this world. And today's passage is the first of two passages of what it means, of what it looks like to walk in love in this world. He's going to interrupt himself and talk about hope for, for two passages and then he'll come back to love. But there's two passages where he says, this is what love looks like in this world. We've done faith, now we're starting love. Specifically, love in this world looks like purity. Purity. And so what we're going to see this morning as we look at this text is that because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and in other Christians, you are to walk in purity and protect the purity of others. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you and your fellow Christians, you need to guard your purity and the purity of your fellow Christians. Is really what Paul is driving home in our passage today. And to see this, we want to first look at, at holiness and how, uh, how Paul describes Christians, how they are defined by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. From there, we want to look at how that must shape our own personal pursuits of purity. But we can't stop there. Because if fellow Christians are also temples of the Holy Spirit, we must guard their purity as well. And so that's where we're going to look at uh, the third point this morning. In chapter 3, Paul told the Thessalonians that he prayed for them day and night. Chapter 3, verse 10. And then he told them uh, what he prays. He described that prayer in verses 11 uh, and f- through 13 that we read uh, just before our text this morning. That he prays that they would abound and increase in love for one another. Love, verse 12. That's Paul's emphasis for their life in this world. It is to be defined by love. But he didn't stop there. In verse 13, he went on and said this. So that the Lord may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Love, verse 12. Holiness, verse 13. Love and holiness. Holiness and love. They're they're two sides of the same coin for the apostle. You can't truly have one and not the other. You can't belong to God and not care about these two things. Because they define God. And so if they define God, they must also define us. In love, Jesus purchased us at a great cost out of the sinfulness of this world to be what? Holy and blameless. He gave his life and he shed his blood to purchase us and to wash us and to make us pure and spotless. Our purity is his end game. At the very center of our passage are verses 7 and 8. For God has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me explain this. Uh, First, disregards probably isn't the best translation. Uh, the word is really more like reject or rebel. It, it's, it's, it's more emphatic than disregards. And what he's saying is that whoever walks in impurity rejects God. Why? Because God has put his Holy Spirit in you. So what's Paul getting at? Again, this, this connects back to chapter 3 and Paul's reminder that just as he sent Timothy... To them, Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us in this world, to dwell within us. He's taken up residence within us, and he's made us his home. He's made us his temple. So therefore, anything we do to our bodies, we do to his house. Paul is saying that to use our bodies for things that displease God is not an attack on Paul the messenger or anybody else who brings instructions. It's an attack on the spirit who dwells within that body. And God takes that seriously. God takes where he dwells seriously. He dwelt in the garden of Eden in creation. What happened when Adam and Eve became sinful? He cast them out of the garden, out of his house. Because he takes the holiness of his house seriously. When when Moses constructed the tabernacle with Israel in the wilderness, do you remember what he did with the Levites, the priests? He, He stationed them all around the tabernacle to prevent anyone unclean from entering in and defiling his house. God cares about his holiness. But what is that? What is holiness? Uh, The word means to be set apart. And when God says he is holy, he means he is different, he is other, he is set apart. But he means that in a particular way. It doesn't mean he's aloof or far away. What it means is he is pure and he is righteous. He's without spot or blemish. That he's wholly uncorrupted by the sin of this world. And his will for you is that you would be like him. 
In verse 3, when he says that this is God's will for you, your sanctification, he just means this is God's will for you, that you would be holy as he is holy. That's the goal. That's what he told Israel when he called them out of Egypt. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.2 All of that is to say that when we say the Holy Spirit indwells us, this is not just some nice little truth that sounds good on a Hallmark card. It has consequences. It means that your body is not your own, but it was bought at a price. It belongs to God, and it's not up to you how you use it. Just like all the vessels in the temple, the, the, the dishes, the pots, the, the candlestick uh, stands and all that, were set aside for special use. You couldn't, you couldn't take those home and, and, and use them for other things. God says, that's what you are like. In fact, in verse 4, the word translated body is actually vessel. Paul's like, you're like the temple vessels. Set apart for special use. You've been set aside for the Lord's use. And God's will for you is to learn to see yourself in this way and to use your body for only what is holy and honorable. Verse 4. And he goes on to explain in verse 5 that this means that we are not to be controlled by the passions of our lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, this is funny, right? Because Thessalonica is a Gentile town. Uh, there were Jews in it, but many of Paul's audience were Gentiles. He says, no, you've been engrafted into the people of God. You are sons of Abraham. And you are not to live as the world lives. Thessalonica, like Corinth, was known for being very sexualized. Uh, Promiscuity was an accepted part of the culture. They thought of themselves as very enlightened and forward-thinking, free from older, stuffy views of sexuality. Does that remind you of any place that you currently live at all? (laughs) And Paul says that's nothing to brag about. But did you notice his wording? That each one of you know how to control his own body. Control his own body. He's talking about self-control. The ability to restrain our desires. to, To not be enslaved by impulse. But to rule over impulses is what distinguishes us from the animals. Animals don't sit around contemplating truth, beauty, holiness, and virtue. They're led by impulse, helpless to fight against it. In other words, they are enslaved to it. To be ruled by your passions and your impulses is to be a slave. To call that freedom is the height of self-deception. 
the Bible doesn't tell us to control a lot. In fact, the Bible spends a lot more time calling us to learn to surrender control. One of the few things it does tell us to control is ourselves, our passions, our impulses, and our desires. Failing to do this is to say that we're no different than the world, that we aren't set apart, that we haven't been freed from slavery. Ruling over your passions is hard, but it's essential to being a Christian. Uh, And I don't think I'm overstating things to say that the church is in grave danger of becoming indistinguishable from the world. Christians are, are becoming sexually promiscuous, telling themselves it's no big deal, everyone does it. They fill their lives with things that only stir those passions and desires. The movies, the TV shows, pornography, social media feeds... They feed these passions instead of holiness. And and then Christians wonder why it's so hard to control those passions. Well, they're well fed. If you want to be strong in holiness, that's what you need to feed. If you spend little or no time in Scripture and in meditation about God's Scripture, can you really be surprised that you lack the strength to subdue your sinful desires? Your greatest strength, though, isn't just what you set before your eyes. Your greatest strength in fighting against temptations is the Spirit of God who dwells within you. How often do you seek his help? Do you pray? Do you cry out for deliverance? Do you believe greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world? And I have everything I need. Do you believe that you have been set apart and made holy? Because the more you believe these things to be true, the more you will act as if they are true. If you want to live well, you must know and you must believe the truth. In many ways, God's calling, his will for you is very modest. Look at the instructions in this passage. Verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5. Exercise self-control and abstain from sexual immorality. And then verse 11. Live quietly, mind your own business, and work hard with your hands. Beloved, that's not Mount Everest. Those are quite modest goals. So why are they so hard? I think the reason these are so hard is because they all require humility. Each one requires denial of self. Sexual purity requires telling yourself and your desires, no, you will not rule me. To live quietly means not seeking glory and honor and celebrity. 
To mind your own business means respecting others above your own desire to feel good about yourself. To work diligently means to not think of others as being there to serve you, but striving not to be a burden to them, and maybe even serving them. Whoa. But here's the thing. Living quietly, minding your own business, and working diligently will all help you live a holy life. Because when you seek to be at the center of everything, obsessed with everyone else's lives, filling your own time with inactivity and entertainment and recreation, you will be tempted beyond measure to use your body for worldly pleasure. Paul's not simply saying, don't be a freeloader, though he is definitely saying that. But he's acknowledging that that idle hands are the devil's playground. If you want to spend less time serving your passions, spend more time serving others. Young men, do you ever use the words, I'm bored? And if so, how do you seek to fill that time? Looking for fun things to do? Have you ever considered spending your downtime helping others? God is offering you something helpful. Find some work for your hands. Spend time serving others. And you might be surprised what that does for your soul. Young women, do you find yourselves spending a lot of times minding other people's business and affairs? That is, after all, what social media is. God is offering you something helpful. Find some work for your hands. Spend some time serving others. There's a lot of young moms with young kids. Just go over and hang out. A lot of old moms. Go spend time with them and see what you can do. Do you aspire for quiet lives focused on your own business and not that of others and diligent productivity if that's not what you're seeking after that might be a big part of why your passions rule over you time spent serving God is time not spent serving sin But there's another way that Paul has in mind about how you can serve your fellow Christians. We see this in verses 6 and 9 as he turns his focus to brotherly love. Love shown to our fellow Christians. He says this is God's will for you that, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all things. Uh, transgress and wrong, uh, get at overstepping 
and doing something that takes advantage of a fellow believer, of violating a believer. And, and, but he says in this, these instructions, he's talking about sexual purity and fellow believers. He's saying they too possess the Holy Spirit. They too are his temple. Violating them is not just a violation of them, but the God who dwells within them. To love God and your fellow Christians means guarding their purity as well as your own. This is how God thinks, and he wants us to learn to think the same way. Uh, that, that who he is affects how we live. Think about Genesis 9. He says, For whoever sheds blood, the blood of man, by a, man's, uh, by a man shall his blood be shed. And then he gives the reason. For man is made in God's image. He says the reason killing somebody is, uh, unjustly is wrong is because they're made in God's image and it's an assault on him. And James says something similar. He says no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in God's image. In the likeness of God. He says, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. In other words, what's wrong with attacking our fellow brothers is that they're made in God's image. That's what makes gossip and lying and cursing so wicked. How much worse then is it to defile those who are uniquely indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Not just made in His image but indwelt by his spirit. No wonder Paul is saying that the Lord is an avenger of those who do these things. Leading your fellow Christians into impurity is not just an assault on them, but the God who dwells within them. If you are really convinced that the Holy Spirit lives in that person, how could you do anything other than treat him or her well? So we're not left wondering what the will of God is. He tells us. It's that we live self-controlled lives free from sexual immorality. That we live quiet lives, minding our own business, laboring diligently with our hands. And this is how we are to live as we await the return of Jesus, pursuing holiness and love. Sounds simple, doesn't it? (laughs) So why is it so hard? What is it that makes self-control so hard? And what do we do with the shame that we feel when we fail? Beloved, on the last day, when our Savior returns and we look Him in the eyes, our hope will not be found in how holy of lives we lived. Our hope will be found in that we were washed in the blood of Jesus and made holy and blameless by his grace. And so that we would never forget this, our Lord repeatedly brings us to this table where we see a visible reminder of where our hope is found. In Jesus giving his life, to pay the price for our sins.
in the bread and the wine that are before us, we see that price. The price he paid to remove our sin and our impurity. And he covers our shame with his own righteousness so that that when he looks on us, it's as if we never sinned. Far from giving us a free pass to sin, that tells us just how important holiness is. But it also does one more thing. As truly as that bread and wine enter into us, he reminds us that he is in us and we are in him. That by his Holy Spirit, he dwells within us and that we are not on our own. And we're not left to our own strength. The Holy Spirit is at work within us, bearing fruit in us, transforming us. And part of that fruit, do you remember what what Paul says in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit, one of them is what? Self-control. That is our hope. And so when you're struggling to control your passions and your desires, remember that you are not your own, that you were bought at a price, Remember that the Holy Spirit dwells within you and he is at work changing you. And remember that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift from our Lord this morning. Well, please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you. That Jesus has taken our shame and that he has washed us in his blood and that you remember our sins no more. Your grace is truly amazing, far beyond the wildest imaginations of men. But we long for more than forgiveness. We long for holiness, for self-control, to use these vessels, our bodies, only for that which honors you. For you have made us your home and you dwell within us. May we treat our bodies as holy running as far as we can from all sexual immorality. Teach us to love one another, to treat each other as temples of your Holy Spirit. Grant us the strength to do all of this, we pray, through Christ our Savior. Amen.